0: Hello, and welcome to Projected Futures, where we explore the possibilities of projection mapping. I'm Ryan Ritchie. In every episode, I want to bring you the stories of the people, technologies, and companies who are leading the way in using projection mapping and immersive technologies. As we hear their stories, all of us can think about new ways to approach this innovative art form. Today my guest is Christopher Ash. Christopher has been working with projection mapping in live theater for years, with lighting design experience going back even further. He has served as part of the projection team on Broadway shows, including Network and St. Joan. And he's worked on dozens of international and regional productions. Today, we'll be talking to Christopher about projection in the theater world and his work on Northern Lights, an outdoor projection mapping show that was part of the Luminature Spectacular this past holiday season at the Philadelphia Zoo. If you aren't familiar with Northern Lights, we've posted a video on our website at projectivefutures.net. And now, I'm very pleased to welcome Christopher Ash to the very first episode of Projective Futures. Christopher, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. So, let's jump into your vast live theater background. I guess we'll start at the beginning. How did it all begin for you?
1: Uh, I mean, really, live theater began, I mean, if we're going way back, it's me being jealous of my brother being in a school play. <laughs> and and then uh, actually then uh, a bit of an unfulfilled sort of prophecy of uh, not being able to perform because our school had actually cut the theater program in, in elementary school. So uh, jump skip a few years and um, th- I found my way to theater through music. Um, I was a singer performer and that brought me into the musical theater scene and then quickly in high school like i always grew up with tools and building things so quickly in high school when i was working on some of the productions i just ended up started building things and painting things. And and this was something that everyone sort of was like, oh, Chris has the talent for that. Like It's just something I fell into and and didn't really think much about it. We were lucky enough in our high school, although small in means, um, to have a couple of people from our local production companies in Buffalo, New York, where I grew up, working on our productions. And they were also working on different concerts and events at the University of Buffalo and other theatrical events. So, they quickly started to incorporate me into their little crews for, you know, I think I started doing a lot of lighting for bar mitzvahs and, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, weddings and that kind of thing. And so, so that throw so through high school, going out and doing all these little gigs just inherently meant that I was just working with my hands and working with a lot of equipment. So I learned a lot of things really, really quickly. And over time, I just realized that this was a world that I liked being in and bringing joy to people's life was something that felt meaningful. It was like, either I go to school for engineering and then I could be an engineer or I could go to school and be a designer. And I was like, well, if I'm an engineer and I build a bridge and it falls, a lot of people get hurt. But if I draw mm-hmm. something on a piece of paper that's beautiful and it doesn't really quite work out, then you're, uh, uh, you, then you're creative. <laughs> um <laughs> Went to undergrad for um, lighting and scenic design. Left there for Chicago. Did six mm-hmm. years in Chicago. A large portion of that was um, touring as a lighting director for River North Chicago Dance Company. Pretty rapidly in there, I was doing a lot of dance production. And when you start to get into story ballet, you have a desired traditionally, um, especially like in 2003, three four. like we were still using a lot of drops. You were like going to one of the backdrop rental companies and renting five or 10 drops or whatever you can afford or whatever your fly space had space for. So then the next choice was, okay, you just light it with the red, green and blue cycle lights mm-hmm. that you did. And I was getting really sort of tired of that. As a scenic designer, I really wanted to be in these locations. I wanted to show, oh, the, the, this winter landscape then melts mm-hmm. and, and I knew that it wouldn't be hard to do. I just have to have three images, right? I have to have a snowy image, I'd have to have a somewhat melted image, and then I have to have a, an unsnowy image. The system that we used to playback and crossfade stills was catalyst. Mm-hmm. But when we did it, it, was it was really well received, and, and I really enjoyed making the imagery. When you're doing live theater, especially, if you have technology, you introduce it into this beautiful world that these performers are creating, and it fails, you have destroyed everyone else's efforts. Hmm. Finally, desktop projectors became a thing. They were becoming more accessible. They were coming bright enough. The contrast ratio was getting to a place where you didn't have to have all these mechanical dowsers everywhere. And that's really sort of a turning point for when the technology sort of allowed us access into projections, into the storytelling.
0: One thing that you touched on that I think is interesting is those, those early years, you know, there was the fear of failure. Mm-hmm. The, the idea that if something goes wrong with the projection, you know, it's going to negatively influence the performance and the ultimate show. And I almost wonder today, Projection can be so awe-inspiring. How do you keep the visuals from overshadowing the production? It's almost the opposite problem sometimes.
1: It really is 100% about experience and taste. Like for me, my background is in designing lighting and scenery. So I am very accustomed to, to creating the space around of which a performer performs. The biggest separating factor that you have between someone like me and someone who comes at it from a film background or, or like a media background or something is they're very used to looking at it as the entire product. I can never look at a projection design without placing a person in this image, right? Like I need to place a scale person in my renderings, in my storyboards, because that will tell you everything. This is also sort of, how I think about projection in general. Essentially, it has four qualities. You are an accessory to lighting, or you're an accessory to the scenery, or you're an accessory with sound. Or you are a direct narrative element. You are something that is help furthering the story directly And that might be as simple as playing a movie. It might be as complex as network, where we have 55 televisions and 10 cameras that are cutting in a live news studio.
0: You are a storyteller at that point. Switching gears a little bit from live theater to projection mapping shows, this past holiday season, you you were involved with a show at the Philadelphia Zoo. And the projection mapping show was called Northern Lights, which was part of this bigger show called Luminature. Can you tell us a little bit about that project?
1: So the Philadelphia Zoo went into this and, and brought us on to create a, a number of events, but the, the, the one that I was particularly involved with was Luminature. Um, it was a 30-minute experience at a place that we call Polaris Terrace that was centered around a giant polar bear.
0: Just wanna jump in for a moment and let everyone know the polar bear sculpture Christopher is referring to was created by Santa Fe artist Don Kennel in 2018. It was originally for the Burning Man Festival in Nevada.
1: So the zoo had it for this winter and we wanted to create an event around this. Largely, obviously we wanna touch on themes of animals, uh, trying to uh, stray away from any particular religion. But uh, we wanted to also create a story about the planet and the environment and and how animals are affected by that. So we divided it into, okay, well, uh, there's, there's a certain number of things that we have to include, right? Like we need to know that we need to have X amount of people that are viewing it from t- these types of places. And those things are limited based on uh, how much real estate we actually have. So in that we know that we need to get X amount of people through that experience at a certain amount of time. So we decided, okay, we'll we'll have a bit of a pre-show, we'll have the show and then the post-show, and there will be a a certain amount of time. And in the pre-show, we'll have little events that will bring tension to it. So in the designing of our pre-show, it revolves around the design of of what that space is and a lot of uh, choices that go into the execution of that space of, okay, well, uh, what do we see here? In front of us, we have a polar bear. Next to the polar bear, we have a, a number of trees that are sort of a side drop, backdrop kind of idea. We have a lake, we have then trees that surround us so what we decided to do is you know, give the polar bear more of a home. Oak Island and their designers created a number of icebergs in consultation with myself and uh, Ken Billing and Associates and Jason Kantrowitz with uh, KBA. Place these icebergs in a way that would essentially become the stage for the polar bear. A large part of the story and what is in this imagery is partially based on, okay, well, what are the themes in the music? So in working with a sound designer, we create a landscape of, oh, well, maybe what we should do is go through themes of environments. So, okay, so we want an urban environment. Okay, great. We want a Saharan environment. Okay, this maybe sounds Saharan, uh, a plains environment. So we create these themes create a soundscape for those. And then using that soundscape as the motivation, then it, it was my job with a small team of people to, to create the, the imagery for that. So we created like little spiders that would walk across the, the Saharan desert when we had the Saharan landscape. And it was such a delight to watch kids Notice these things. They would get drawn closer and closer. And then, uh, so then these little events uh, allowed us to gather a crowd and then present a, a larger show. That show then has a number of, uh, essentially a pretty typical story arc where you have, you know, your rising action, your climax, and your falling action. Our climax in this show being uh, the storm, in the middle of which we then highlight some elements of environmental disasters and pollution and and the way that humans are interacting with the environment that are not so helpful. And then through the conclusion, start to paint a picture of, hey, look, there's a better day. There are things that we can do to help ourselves and help the environment. And and it's a brand new day. Let's go out there and change the world. I mean, obviously, this is a very family-oriented show, so it's a, it's a very open, simple narrative.
0: Let's get into the technical weeds a little bit here. Sure. Sort of take us through the process of pre-production and then the on-site process to, to make the show happen.
1: You know, it's interesting. A large part of the aesthetic and the choices actually evolved out of um, a pitch trailer that we created. So we, you know, I had taken um, a photograph of the space with some illustrations that the scenic company had created of the icebergs and the bear superposed onto the, the photograph of the lake that the show had existed. We, I then started to create a one minute teaser essentially of what it is that we think this could look like because at the, at this point I, I mean this is like six months out which actually wasn't a lot of time so uh, the show actually moved rapidly so six months out I, you know I just imagined uh, you know I took we cr- created a very simple soundtrack um, that had the, roughly the arc that we have in the show you know here's the thunderstorm here's a, you know rising action with these, these pieces of music that we're excited about cut something to be interesting and then I use that uh, to to just play, frankly. Uh, so, taking a number of images that I could find, um, use I use After Effects a lot. So, I'll I'll take I'll, I'll create a narrative storyboard roughly in the frame. So, for instance, the polar bear uh, was a projection surface. A, a standing polar bear is a, a nice long vertical surface, uh, which isn't really great for a lot of content, frankly. Like it right. was it was <laughs> it was incredibly difficult to to figure out what to use in there. I would I would take the soundtrack and essentially create a music video within the themes of our story, and largely use the music as the motivating factor to move us forward. In creating that storyboard, then it's like uh, you know you realize oh well something's missing right? Like you're seeing the entire space, you sort of you've created the night mood of what it might look like in Philadelphia, and, and you know okay well we know the, the the idea starts off with well we know we don't want image on the polar bear, so I put image on the polar bear. Oh well that's not really doing it. It's not enough. So, uh, oh, well, That we have these icebergs. We thought that they might just be lighting in these icebergs. And it's like, okay, well, what if we put imagery in the icebergs and we fill it out? And it's like, oh, great. And, you know, and, and, and it's almost like painting where you start to realize like, oh, you know what, this is our landscape. And adding these elements one by one in these storyboards, we're allowing ourselves to create essentially the the list of equipment that we're going to need in order to execute those ideas. And and because, you know, I have the experience of being a lighting designer and the set designer, uh, like I'm not introducing things into the storyboards that are fictional. Like, uh, you know, most of the things that, you know, if I put in a lighting beam that moves through space, I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe that's like a clay packy light that, you know, is a certain amount of lumens or something.
0: Right, right.
1: I know okay well we have six icebergs that we need to put projections on and the the two buildings every project has a budget right and and essentially as a designer like I'm always looking at that budget going well okay where do I need to invest my my projection bucks like where 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 does the bang have to go so evolving into sort of the technical requirements you know the storyboard then says this is what we want to try to accomplish And what's really nice is if you illustrate your ideas well enough, oftentimes if the resources are available or could be available, you can use that as the platform, which to get people excited about what it is that you want to do, and then invest some more resources. So we were actually able to get that. And we, I think we went from like being a one or two projector show to a a five projector show just by, you know, showing what it is that we wanted to do. We have to decide, okay, well, how do we want to light the polar bear? So one of the next steps that we took was, okay, well, we need to go out and just do a test. The reality is there's there's bright projectors and there's medium projectors and there's not so bright projectors. <laughs> and you can do something big with a not so bright projector. You just have to be very uh, clever about it, right? Like it, all that really matters at the end of the day in terms of projectors is... How many lumens per square foot on the surface that you're trying to project on, and how does that surface react to the light? Right, so you you start with well, what is the biggest thing that I can get? Right, because no matter what, the the, the brightest, most high resolution projector that you can that you can get is going to be the most impressive. And if you can't get that, then what's the next thing that you can get? and you just do the math right like you, you you figure out what your distance is what your throw is what you want to cover and then you say okay well you know you have loose guides right like i mean th- this is old but like for some people like the threshold of brightness is like oh 20 lumens per square foot like you, if you go below 20 lumens per square foot like you're gonna have a really terrible experience you know for some other people like if you go below 100 lumens per square foot You're going to have a terrible experience. Sure. But the other thing is you have to factor in is, oh, you have all of these moving lights and all these other arc source uh, instruments and things that are going to be creating other light. Well, how do those things marry in? I'm thinking about a number of moments as actually being lighting moments. There's a number of moments in Luminature that this is just about lighting. And what I'm doing in projection is an accessory to lighting and we should all play along and then it will be effective.
0: Do you have go-to pieces of hardware that make sense or is it really you know, each, each piece sort of dictates what's required?
1: Yeah. I mean, there are things that, like every piece of equipment, like every car, right, like has a certain types of features that you uh, will want to use. Like, I'm not going to get a BMW uh, to go pick up a pile of bricks, right? You want the the tool for the job. So there are projectors that are bright and quiet, but don't have good shutter abilities. Well, that's, you know, like uh, what I need in a theater show is the ability to douse the projector smoothly, Okay, well, I can't use the bright, quiet projector that doesn't douse because it's going to be distracting. So I have to figure out another way about it. And, and, and largely, it also comes down to budget. Outside of projectors, right? Like you have media service. And this is, the, the, this is probably the best example of it. I could do the same show with a $300 piece of software as I could with a $3,000 piece of software as a $30,000 piece of software. But what each of those tiers of software allow is a different level of reliability, is a different um, set of tools for interfacing, and a different way of dealing with space. So the, the tools that I tend to use most frequently on, on smaller shows and what we used with uh, the Philadelphia Zoo is a program called Isadora, which you know, I've used for a very long time and I adore it, but historically is unreliable. And, and there, it's funny because like there are drafts of the program that are reliable. And mm-hmm. we actually ended up on the zoo with a draft of the program that was unreliable. We were like in the window of updates that they had a buggy version, it had to heavily rely on our backup system, which in live theater, especially in live theater or shows that you don't want to have technicians worrying about the execution of the show, you know, you'd rather have them worrying about, oh, a lamp goes out or whatever. But a computer crashing is a whole nother level. You don't want that to be the case. But if you're talking about weighing, again, your projection bucks, like for us, it was more important to have bright projectors. Otherwise, it would be a really disappointing experience. So we went with a $300 piece of software like Isadora. It was funny because the last day of the show, they released the non-buggy version and and we figured out uh, what our problems were. But um but yeah, it was it was a bit of a hassle. Then the the next tier, the three thousand dollar tier, is a program called Watch Out. And the nice thing about like something like Watch Out is it's linear, it's timeline, um, it's pretty bulletproof in terms of execution, um, and a lot of people know it like it's just it's been around for a long period of time so you have more technicians that could come in and help troubleshoot if something is going wrong but it it, it relatively is limited in uh its three-dimensional capabilities but it does it does play back pretty well the thirty thousand dollar version and a piece of software i love but is you know this is your f1 sports car we use a program called Disguise a lot uh formerly d3 and you know this is a tool that I use whenever I need something that's three-dimensional, that's complex. And especially if something moves, like there's a, there's an opera I did at the Paris opera that was um, supposed to come to the Met this spring, but has now been pushed off for a couple of years that we had three, three, three dimensional buildings, like three story buildings uh, that were on turntables that rotate through the opera. And we have to follow those buildings with projection as they rotate in time. The only way to do that is to get data about the exact position of those three-dimensional objects, have exact models of those three-dimensional objects in Disguise and, and allow that data to tell us where that building is. So Disguise can do all of the math in tracking the building as it rotates.
0: So, with all of this software, are you—is that strictly projection mapping, or is it also show control and and handling lighting and and everything?
1: I would say for the projects that I do, ninety nine point nine percent of the time, the the projection software is its own container. But generally speaking, in theaters, especially, you have the projection computer and system that is being maybe triggered by another event. So, at the zoo, for instance, we were triggered by a Q-Lab computer that would send out a MIDI show control event or a timecode event that we would then listen to. And when they when this track started playing, we synced up to whatever track it is that they were playing. Lighting then took the same MIDI timecode events and had a lighting console that is doing its own thing. So I would say that at least in the, th- the theater background community, we were very hesitant to have everything be in one container,
0: mm-hmm.
1: especially on one computer. Like everything that we want to do is so it it tends to be process heavy so trying to make the same computer do three things rather than just one thing for instance like in the zoo when unfortunately the the times that the show would crash just the video would crash right the lighting is still happening the you know sound is still happening and then we could go to a backup really fast and you know nobody no one's the wiser But if it's all in one system and it all crashes, then you're down. You know, you've lost a a half an hour worth of time in the the event.
0: What's the effect of moving the show outdoors? (laughs) How does that affect planning and you have wind and everything else? How do you keep things mapped accurately for, (laughs) say, the icebergs at, at the zoo in that show?
1: Well, it's challenging when the icebergs deflate, <laughs> you know, when, when, when your surface is literally floating and moving and deflating, like it's, it's, uh, it's a bit tricky. Uh, I mean, so, th- so there's, there's little things that you can do to give yourself some flexibility, for instance, like on the icebergs, there's soft edges, for for all of the things you know I'm overshooting a little bit because by the time the projection moves past the iceberg that I'm shooting it's gone through another 50 yards of air and has diminished that amount of brightness and just becomes texture amongst the trees right like you don't really notice what's happening past it so you just it's essentially like taking your safe boundaries and and having more content go out to the end of those safe boundaries and, and fuzzing the edges, so that when things adjust because they do adjust, that it's it's not going to hurt you. It's a little trickier, like for instance, on the bear, uh, our main surface. In order to get the brightness that we wanted, um, we had to overlap two projectors. So what you have to do is just make sure everything is cemented in the best you can, right? Like uh, the temperature changes are going to change things slightly. And in that, then your image might become a little fuzzy. But trying to merge two projectors on a three-dimensional surface in changing circumstances is probably one of the hardest things to do. And at that point, really, you're just relying on a group of technicians, it, especially with the, the type of lower end software that we're using, you know, you just have to have someone come in and treat what's called the, ma- well, the map, which is essentially a mesh, a grid, you know, over the image where you, you've put different points in the image that then can adjust how those pixels are projected and where they're projected. So you readjust your grid your mesh onto the object, or you refocus the projector physically so that it it lines up again perfectly. And that's sort of a daily thing. You just, um, Mm. every day you go in and you just say, okay, is this within our tolerance of acceptable? And you adjust it a little bit. Sure.
0: And then when it comes to the creation of the content, you're doing that in After Effects?
1: Yeah, 99% of the material that I generate um, will be from After Effects. If the show requires doing some kind of CG process, um, I I tend to lean towards Cinema 4D. Uh, Cinema 4D seems to work for me, but then I I will tend to bring that Cinema 4D process back through an After Effects workflow. And largely, I like After Effects in a way that helps me manage a project more than the the content creation. Like So I can imagine doing the same types of work that I do. I often linear edit in After Effects when, okay, maybe I could do the same thing in Premiere Pro a little faster, but I do it in After Effects so that all of my work process is in one program, one software base. I also really enjoy the way that After Effects gives you information about where your files are. So a a lot of the projects I work on have a long period of life. If I come back to the show in a year and I've worked with a small team of people and I open up a project and files are missing, you you can click on the file and it will tell you where that file was or at least the file directory hierarchy. So then I can then use that information to go back and hunt down these files. And largely, if I keep it all in the same system, I, I've ne- I haven't lost where the editing of the, that material comes from. So, so, yeah, so After Effects tends to be the, the final workflow process for, for creating the final content.
0: What do you think is the best way for people to sort of, you know, get their feet wet with this?
1: I think any level that you want to jump in is fine. Uh, you, ultimately, it just depends on what you're interested in. You know, if, if if what you're interested in is in tr- like light form, for instance, in transforming existing objects in really complex and interesting ways, then that's a tool. That's a great way to go. Like you know, scan your 3D surface. You you learn a lot inherently, and then you start to realize once you've broken up in a package like MadMapper or um, any of these other programs that can they they can essentially do the same thing. They're sort of evolutions of uh, arguably of those three products that I mentioned, which is like. A node-based piece of software like Isadora or a timeline-based piece of software like uh, Watchout or a 3D-based piece of software like Disguise. So you start to see that all of these things are sort of playing on the same themes. And in opening up each of those packages and going down the journey of creating content in them, you learn skills that will translate into different places of work. So if you're working in theater, you're probably going to see the same types of pieces of software used in uh, amongst the designers that are working in theater. Just because we rely on a lot of other people knowing that software. I, and I think that's that's one of the big differences. You know, So what do you start with? Well, look at your industry. If you're, If you're trying to make a commercial living out of this, look at the people that you're going to be working with and they're going to have a set of expectations of knowledge right so if you're going to work in theater you're probably going to want to learn disguise and watch out right it, it, those are the applications that are that are being used the most and that has evolved like it was catalyst for a while it, was, it, it, it evolves pretty quickly and, and maybe in 5 years it won't be those two pieces of software but for right now that's the industry standard if you work in Europe that might be pandora you know, but that's being faced out by disguise, you know, so, so you should look at what it is where you want to be and what you want to do. If you're working by yourself in in your home or like doing your own projects, you know, just look out there. There's a lot of really great inexpensive pieces of software that are doing a lot of the same things that those expensive pieces of software are doing. But again, you're learning the same skills. And and so many of them are starting to have tutorials and workshops and in and, and ways that will allow you to to learn the software from ground zero. But there's phases, right? Like you need to understand like how to make a picture and then you need to understand how to make a movie and then you need to understand how to translate that movie into 3D space. And if you work on those skills level by level, then you can eventually evolve those into, I can now tell a story in 3D space with imagery.
0: And so I want to get your thoughts on on where everything is going in the future. It's a simple question. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean... If I were to talk about future,
1: it's interesting because, uh, especially right now, we're in such a fascinating time and and there's a lot of attention being turned towards media design and, and media design specifically in theater. And is this a potential way of us getting through this awkward time when we can't share a space? Are we looking at theater experiences in another way? some of the conversations are just with theater creators saying, okay, great. Now we're all going to have to learn how to become cinematic theater creators, because we're going to have to start generating content. If we can't be in a theater for the next year, we're going to have to create theater another way. And and the closest relative to that will be television theater or uh, you know film theater, you know, using the stories that we would want to tell in the methods that we would want to tell them some people have asked like oh is vr the way to go i mean all of these things just have technological barriers and uh, and also like privilege barriers right (laughs) so i can't imagine vr or also massive like projection design honestly like i'm conflicted with that in the theater as well because it's actually quite expensive it's a it's a big privilege to be able to do projection in a theatrical show so when you're talking about less resources, like how then do we move this technology forward? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, I just keep having this problem of, okay, well, great. Now everybody has to wear these thousand dollar headsets and uh, be attached to a computer in, in a way that's sort of awkward. And, but video games are sort of like that version of theater. Like everybody has a console and, and you can go through these incredibly dramatic stories in video game world arguably using a lot of the same technologies as projection design. What I do see, though, is that like, people are excited by it, right? Like when you, when you go out and you see a building mapped and it crumbles into dust, people get viscerally excited about the prospect of transforming reality through imagery. So it's not going anywhere. So what, what could the next thing look like? you know, I think you're starting to see it in augmented reality things with, with phones and being able to create art into unique spaces. I think you're seeing a lot of people that will start to, um, use camera uh in theater obviously with more stories incorporating uh, phones and the use of taking videos and photographs of of live events like that is now being integrated into the stories that are being told about now so you're just going to see these technologies uh, driving from the phone largely uh, threaded into the narratives that we have to tell so we have to show that technology we have to incorporate it somehow
0: and live theater and also projection mapping shows outdoors, obviously, you have people coming together. I'm curious what your outlook is. Do we see a future where, where we are back together again and, and enjoying this, this type of storytelling?
1: Um, I, I, I think we are. We, we, we're going to have to be. I mean, just it's human nature to need to have community. And there's no difference between, you know, a major opera in an outdoor venue and someone in front of a fire putting shadows on a wall, telling the story of a hunt. Like there's functionally no difference. Like you're telling human stories to humans and doing that in some kind of community. We can do that. We can do that safely. There's ways to do it. It's just it's not going to follow the same capital models that um, have existed, at least not for a long time. Uh, until there we can do it um, knowledgeably and safely you're going to see outdoor venues you're going to see people trying uh, everything they can to 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 tell uh, the stories that their communities need in a way that uh, that is safe and projection might be a part of that story right like so if, if you can't be intimate with the performer well, what you can do, and like I was saying, like with network, for instance, like if you have a camera on an actor's face, even if they're off stage, you have that intimacy again. And there, it's different. It's not the same. But like knowing that that person is there telling that story in, in front of you in live space, it, it doesn't feel like you're watching a movie it's different. You know that that has a set of choices that are happening in that moment. And it's tactile. You, you can taste it. So yeah,
0: I think we're going to be back. Christopher, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you. My thanks again to Christopher Ash. You can find out more about his incredible work at ChristopherAsh.com. And again, you can see his projection mapping show, Northern Lights, on our website at ProjectiveFutures.net. And I want to thank you for listening to the very first episode of the Projective Futures podcast. We're just getting started, so be sure to share your feedback. You can send us an email at Projectivefuturesgmail.com or reach out on Twitter at projectedfuture, no S on the end, or visit our website projectivefutures.net. I hope you'll join us next time. Thanks for listening.